Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week we meet at this table to experience, inspire, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys and, yes, lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us there's some things we don't talk about. But here, we live beyond both judgment and wreckage. We share aha moments, the stories have been left in our pockets for way too long. Every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak like into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. However, you must come dressed in your inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files, Channel 37, and Comcast, Channel 27 in Reston. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us, no worries. You can hear our archive shows wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Just key in, frankly speaking, with Tyra G. Podcast. Or visit the media room on my website, tyragarlington.com. And if you just feel like connecting with me, you know that's easy. Email me at tyra at tyragarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. For our international listeners who may not know, the month of February is also known as Black History Month in America. Now, how that came about came about is remarkable in light of historical African-American experiences. Tonight, we're going to add to the Frankly Speaking catalog of shows in the theme of stories that need telling. Now, those of you who follow the show have heard me say often, everybody has a story. But more specifically, everyone is a story. I also believe there are a plethora of stories that have been, have been lived and sacrificed and need telling, but have not yet found their voice. This week's show is giving three such stories a microphone with a military flair. I'll offer this introduction. The story of Black History Month begins in 1915, half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. That September, the Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and the prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements of black Americans and other people of African descent. Known today as the African Association of the Study of African American Life and History, 
The group sponsored a National Negro History Week in 1926, choosing the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Now, that event inspired schools and communities nationwide to organize local celebrations, establish history clubs, and host performances and lectures. Now, in the decades that followed, mayors of cities across the country began to issue yearly proclamations recognizing Negro History Week. However, by the late 1960s, thanks in part to the civil rights movement and a growing awareness of black identity, Negro History Week had evolved into Black History Month on many college campuses. But it was President Gerald R. Ford officially recognizing Black History Month in 1976, calling upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of black Americans in every area throughout our history. Since then, every American president has designated February as Black History Month and endorsed a specific theme. The Black History Month theme in 2023 is Black Resistance, which explores how African Americans have resisted historic and ongoing oppression in all forms, especially the racial terrorism of lynching, racial massacres, and police killing. Now, Carter G. Williams offers this, excuse me, Woodson offers this, those who have no record of what their forebears have accomplished lose the inspiration which comes from the teaching of biography and history. Two other famous voices offer the following, and I quote, My humanity is bound up in yours, but we can only be human together. That was Desmond Tutu. I quote again, Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, Life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly, offered by Langston Hughes. You know, there's a story that I heard recently offered by my guest at the table today. It, con- it continues our Black History true tribute, and it's um, an expose and I happened to witness it. I saw it. You won't see it, but I, you will get as much emotion as I did, I'm sure, when you hear it. It's about the United States Colored Troops. How many of you knew they existed? Hmm. And it's rendered by Colonel Arthur Nick Nicholson, retired. As I pass the mic to Nick, He's going to introduce himself, but more importantly, he's going to tell you why he did this, what motivated the research, and to perform this very inspirational revelation. Nick, the mic is yours. Hello, everyone, and um, I would like to thank Tara uh, for the opportunity to present on her program today. Um, Black History Month is very important to me. It's very important to the organization I represent. And uh, we do diligence uh, every February to try to bring light to, as far as that, the history and the legacy of African Americans. And uh, 
Just as a way of introduction, I'm Nick Nicholson. I'm native of Clarksville, Tennessee. I'm an inspirational speaker, author, and entrepreneur. I uh, retired from the Air Force and from the U.S. government intelligence community. I'm currently the president and CEO of several businesses, all grounded in uh, service, integrity, and excellence. Additionally, I currently serve as the executive director and president of Mount Olive Cemetery Historical Preservation Society and a board member of the Clarksville Montgomery County Arts and Heritage Development Council. I've authored two books, uh, first one being the title of Dancing on the Razor's Edge, A Story of Leadership and Triumph, and then the second one, Thoughts of an Inspired Mind, a collective of, collection of quotes and insights that I've written and collected that have made a positive impact on my life. So what I've done here for the month of February that we're going to launch into is um, I've written, uh, research written, and, and I'm going to act out the feelings of the USCT uh, along the lines of the questions that I've posed to myself and researched. Um, so the 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 way that this is going to go is I have the first, the question, and then the research that I've uh, concluded via the question, and then uh, the mindset of the USCT. So those that's how this expose will, will unfold. But first things first, um, disclaimer. My thoughts and comments are my own, and in no way are reflective individually or co collectively of members of Mount Olive Cemetery Historical Preservation Society. As Cyrus said, the, the title of my presentation is the expose into the mind of the U.S. colored troop hereafter referred to as the USDT. This project came about as we were getting ready for um, Black History Month. And although I've read about the USCT, and we have uh, 31 uh, U.S. colored troops in, buried in our cemetery, Mount Olive Cemetery. Um, I, I, I wanted to, this time, try to feel what they felt as slaves, as fugitives, as USCTs. So that's what the expose is about, is to try to explore their minds and feel what they were feeling. So I posed several questions, the first of which is the what mental mindset did it take to run away from slavery, bondage, shackles, and the relentless beatings? William Henry Singleton, a former slave in North Carolina who became a soldier in the Union Army, said this about Emancipation Proclamation and the freeing of slaves, what that meant to he and his race. I quote, could not be bought and sold anymore or whipped or made to work without pay, not to be treated as things without souls anymore, but as human beings. I was born a slave, for I was a black man. And because I was black, it was believed I had no soul. I had no rights that anybody was bound to respect. For in the eyes of the law, I was but a thing. I was bought and sold. I was whipped, end quote. So I believe the mindset was one of opportunity and a decision to escape their wretched condition at all costs. It took overwhelming courage to first make that decision and an even greater willingness to put it into action. So I surmise that that decision was made without compromise. 
either they were going to die escaping to freedom or they were going to die fighting for the freedom of self and family. And even if they were caught, attacked, hanged, and burned, as some of them were, running away from the bondage of slavery, I believe in their minds, they won. They won because they gave it all in trying. In other words, a run for a better life and die in trying was better than dying in place for nothing. USCT. I will not endure these wretched conditions and the unending turmoil of slavery another day. Not when I know there is another way. So I must run. I must run. I must run. Second question that I came up with was, what attributes did it take to change one's status from slave to fugitive? And that's in faith or in regard to the Fugitive Slave Act or the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which required that all escaped slaves upon capture be returned to the slave owner. And officials and citizens of free states had to comply and cooperate with that law. Abolitionists nicknamed the law the Bloodhound Bill, after the dogs that were used to track down and attack fugitives freeing from slavery. 76% of all fugitive slaves were younger than 35, and they had to be to make that treacherous journey to freedom. And 89% of them were male. So when I go back to the question of attributes, I thought of many, but two stuck, two stuck and resonated with me. One was overwhelming fear. And when I thought about the fear that they had to experience and internalize, I came up with this with regard to that fear. Fear that does not stop one, conversely, is a compelling force to go forward in the face of the unknown. And their unknown was hundreds of miles of country that they had to traverse from the plantation to the union lines to be free. The, the, the other attribute that I settled on or, or that resonated with me was a resolute commitment to never turn back. And here is an example of that. An account of the experience of a fugitive is given from the perspective of an African-American woman in Toni Morrison's powerful novel, Beloved. And based on actual events, it tells the story of Seek, a runaway who kills her small child rather than allowing her to be recaptured and enslaved again. Now that's a powerful, resolute commission, commitment to never turn back. USCT. Oh God, yes, I am scared. I am so scared that I tremble in every bone of my body. But I, I will not let my fear, I will not let it stop me. For I must run. I must run. I must run now. Third question. And this is an overarching question. What did ex-slaves, why did ex-slaves risk all to serve? Subset of that. Why did serve, what did serving mean to the USCT? 
soon after he joined the army, Cable, a black Union soldier, wrote a letter to his wife that showed his passion for his mission. And I quote, great is the outpouring of the colored people that is now rallying with the hearts of lions against the very curse that has separated you and me. Yet we shall meet again. And oh, what a happy time it will be when this ungodly rebellion shall be put down and the curses of our land be trampled under our feet. I am a soldier now, and I will use my utmost endeavor to strike at the rebellion and the heart of this system that so long has kept us in chains. Remain your affectionate husband unto death, end quote. USCT. Yes, I am free, and I am a soldier. I can be whipped no more. No more chains and shackles on my feet and I get at least one good meal to eat. Now I will fight with all that is in me, even if it be death, to free others from the bondage of slavery that I so endured. Now, not everybody knows, but there, there was a fight within the fight. And that fight was the plight of the USCT on the battlefield. And I'll give you an account of that. A Union soldier described what he witnessed when he was injured and hiding after the Union retreat in the Battle of Alusti. I quote, I managed to crawl into a bush where I could see the rebels come to our wounded and take their money, watches, and whatever they found on their persons while they stripped the dead all together. The wounded, they bayoneted without mercy. Close to me was a fine-looking Negro who was wounded in the leg. His name was Brown, an orderly sergeant in one of the companies of the 8th United States Regiment. A rebel officer happened to see him and says, oh, you black rascal, you will not remain here long. And dismounting from his horse, placed his revolver close to the head and blew his brain down. USCT. God, I am lying here wounded next to my white comrade and the blood from our wounds mingled together and I can tell no difference. Oh God, we both fought the good fight. So please tell me why then do they forsake me now? I hear them coming, and I know that I'm next. Ruth, Ruth, I love you, and I hope that you are proud of me. Ruth, take care of you and the kids. Pow! Gunshot to the head. Next question. Was it worth it? And will I gain the respect and honor that I deserve for fighting for this country. In the words of William Henry Singleton, I quote, I live to see the institution of slavery into which I was born and of which I was for many years a victim pass away. I wore the uniform of those men in blue who through four years of suffering wiped away with their blood the stain of slavery and purged the republic of this sin. Next account. General Benjamin Butler gave this 
eyewitness account of the fighting at Newmarket Heights and then said this of the dead. I quote, I looked up on their bronze faces upturned into the shining sun as if in mute appeal against the wrongs of the country for which they had given their lives and whose flag had only been to them a flag of stripes on which no star of glory had ever shone for them. Feeling that I have had wronged them in the past and believing what was the future of my country for them, among my dead comrades there, I swore to myself a solemn oath. May my right hand forget its cunning and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I ever fail to defend the rights of those men who gave their blood for me and my country this day and for their race forever, and God helping me, I will keep that oath. USCT. I look at me now, and I am proud of me. I am proud that I ran. I am proud that I fought. And I am proud that I am free. If nobody be proud of me, I am proud of me. I am proud of me because I did something. Now, Evan Burke, a philosopher, once wrote this, and I quote, the only thing necessary for triumph, for the triumph of uh, evil, is for good men to do nothing. Let me say that again. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. End quote. I think this next statement epitomizes the state of the USCT post-Civil War. That is this. The struggle in front of me is real, but the struggles behind give rise to the fight within me of overcoming all that is before me now. The journey from slave to soldier and from soldier to possible citizen highlighted the hope of freedom that many of these former slaves felt as the Civil War ended. But the actions against African-American troops on the battlefield were an unfortunate reminder that their freedom was not recognized. And there would remain resistance to the freedoms of African-Americans in the future. Now, the USCTs were recruited into segregated units, were issued outdated weapons, suffered harsh penalties from court-martials, received less pay for most of the war, performed more fatigue duty, faced enduring atrocities on the battlefield that I have just mentioned, and received inadequate medical care throughout the war. Now, get this. Despite these facts and hardships, the USCT served bravely, and the regiments performed their duties above and beyond expectations. And it may be concluded here. No, no, no. Let me rephrase this. It is concluded here that they fought for a more promising future rather than a love for their country as it then existed. Officially, Army records state that more than 178,000 colored troops served in the Union Army. Included in that number were about 7,000 non-commissioned officers and about 100 commissioned officers. Additionally, members of the USCT were awarded at least 18 medals of honor. 
finally. The enlistment of black soldiers cemented the death of slavery and gave blacks the social recognition they needed for U.S. citizenship. Abraham Lincoln said this, and I quote, without the military help of the black freedmen, the war against the South could not have been won. Another quote from Georgia Governor Joseph E. Brown stated, whenever we establish the fact that blacks are a military race, we destroy our whole theory that they are unfit to be free. Mm. USDP. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. That was the original Pledge of Allegiance in 1892, and of course it has changed. But I do believe that the USCT pledged with their mind, body, and soul their commitment to fight for the freedom of themselves and the freedom for others, of their other mankind. Even though those freedoms were not apparent at the end of the war and took some time to materialize for them to realize what they fought for. Thank you for listening. Wow. I know my audience now understands why I ask you to share it on the show. I called Nick. I said, hey, hey, that was wonderful. I got there. I felt it. I saw it. Would you share it? And he said, yes. My question to you is, when he said, when he had, when he projected the voice of the United States colored troops, could you understand? Could you understand they were fighting for a country that didn't want them? I'm going to ask Nick. I, I already have asked Nick. What would he say to them today uh, based on what we know about then? And Nick, you want to take a moment and, and share your, your uh, response? Uh, sure, sure. As I, as I thought about it, um, like I said, you know, just putting your, myself into their mindset and, and trying to feel what they said, feel, it just gave me an overwhelming appreciation for what they did. So this was a very easy letter to write, and it goes like this. My thank you comes at a point in my life where I thank you for me for your sacrifices is most humbly given. What I mean by that is, yes, I have read the stories, but my recent experience of engaging the mindset of the USCT has left me with a more connected feeling to your journey from slavery to fugitive and from fugitive to Union Army soldier. Mm. Only after that mental engagement into your journey was I able to start genuinely feel your plight. My almost 40 years of military service in no way compares to your four years fighting for your freedom. I appreciate that in the face of all odds that you did something. You made a, a decision to be a part of the answer. Through all of the hardships, your commitments to fight for your freedom exceeded all expectations. And yes, your struggle was real and you faced it with bold actions that were the proof of your conviction. Your actions left a legacy that I am proud to know, and even prouder 
to be one of its descendants. Thank you for showing to yourselves, to the world, and me that your value and the value of your people were worth fighting and dying for. I most humbly stand on your shoulders. Thank you. Wow. Now I want everyone to stay in that place and I'm going to take you on a time travel to the plight of African-American troops in another war. The following program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. American soldiers fall in line, and their unity is part of their pride. They dress the same, they march the same, they even eat the same food and have the same haircut. But outside of public view, do they treat each other the same? In a place where unity is strength, and a person supposedly survives and advances on their own merits, does race matter? It sure did in Vietnam. They were everyday Joes wanting to live the American dream and all of a sudden they found themselves in Vietnam and then would come back home and wouldn't have the same rights that other Americans had. You're trying to fight someone else's freedom and you don't have freedom of your own with your own country there. There's two things that I learned from my mother that I still remember. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you and God help those who help themselves. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, African-American soldiers and the Vietnam War. While the Vietnam War raged overseas, unrest over civil rights was growing at home. For many African-American soldiers, the two conflicts were tough to reconcile. Imagine leaving 1960s Alabama, only to arrive in Vietnam and see a Confederate flag flying or serving 22 years in the Air Force, only to be disobeyed by subordinates because of the color of your skin, or putting your life on the line for your country, only to come home in uniform and be forced to sit in the back of the bus. On the front lines in Vietnam, whites and blacks fought side by side as brothers, looking out for one another. But when they returned to base, those friendships often fell apart. James Westheider is author of Fighting on Two Fronts, African-Americans in the Vietnam War. I spoke with him about the racial tension that traveled with American soldiers across the Pacific. Jim, conventional wisdom says racial strife in America in this time was lessened on the battlefront in Vietnam, where the men bonded as they fought a common enemy. In Fighting on Two Fronts, you found race relations for Vietnam soldiers to be much more complex. Uh, yes, it was true for combat units that there was less racism. Away from the battlefield, there was often very stark racial separation. There was racial animosity. And on several bases, stateside and overseas, there were racial gang fights that broke out. Did you come to understand that it actually shocked the military, as well as the officers, that this had exploded on them? during the Vietnam era? There had been a sense of denial of the growing problem earlier, but 
when they started having large-scale race riots like at Camp Lejeune, even Cameron Bay in Vietnam, it did shock them into reality. There's also strong evidence that African Americans are being criminalized and jailed for things their white counterparts were not. Um, And they were. The military actually admitted that. They did a study, and they found that African Americans were, in fact, being arrested, tried, punished, and imprisoned in disproportionate numbers compared to whites. The military has what's known as non-judicial punishment. And those are minor infractions, uh, being late for work detail, hair not uh, cut to military regulation, things like that. African Americans were far more susceptible to be written up for things like that than were whites. African Americans were also far more susceptible to have general court-martial charges brought against them. And I want to point out that African Americans that contested the charges and demanded a court-martial, they were acquitted at a higher rate than were white offenders. And the military itself admitted that this was evidence that African Americans were often being unfairly prosecuted. What percentage of the military leaders were African American? How many of those were officers? Mm, Not that many. That was another problem. Even though the armed forces were making a concerted effort to bring in more black officers, the officer corps averaged only about 2 to 4% African-American. There was only one African-American battalion commander. There was really a lack of black leadership in the military administration, in Pentagon, and on the field in Vietnam. Tech Sergeant Ron Basham was one of the few black commanders And Ron found himself in more than one fight with white subordinates who didn't respect his command. He says some men disobeyed him and blatantly disregarded orders because of his skin color. And sometimes that got them killed. Well, you say, I need this job done. I I mean, I expect you to do this. And I said, well, you know, why did I listen to you so-and-so didn't say I had to do it? I said, well, you're not under him. You're under me. And then they would do a half job. Now you got to penalize people to do the job right because you have an idiot that doesn't want to do the job right because he has bias, which he should not have had when he raised his hand to get into the Air Force. But some of them chose not to listen, so they're not here now. A lot of them died. Hey, just simple as clean your weapon. As soon as you come out of a firefight, you, you clean it immediately so it doesn't jam or blow up on your face. But you'd be surprised how many guys had weapons blown on their face because they didn't want to clean their weapon. They did not want to respect the stripes because of the color that was wearing them. They figured John Wayne could give them a better answer. Vietnam was the first fully integrated major war the U.S. had waged. But fully integrated mainly meant more integrated than things were back home. Chris Moore spent most of 1970 in Vietnam as part of the Army Engineers 46th Battalion. Growing up, uh, we had to sit in the uh, balcony when my brother and I would go to the movies on Saturdays. Uh, that didn't happen in the Army. It was fully integrated. You go to the mess halls, you ate the same chow. Uh, you know, you didn't see that kind of overt segregation, but the subtle things were still there. He means things like Confederate flags. A lot of guys flew Confederate flags. My answer to that was I went down in the motor pool once and I knew a Vietnamese who was a pretty good artist and I had him paint two black fists 
on the bumper of my truck. Well, the platoon sergeant who was in charge of uh, maintenance there saw it, and he went hog wild. I said, if they want to fly their Confederate flags, I'm going to run black fist on my bumper. So maybe even before Colin Kaepernick was uh, kneeling down, uh, we found ways to subtly and not so subtly fight back against that kind of racism. Um, there was one base in Vietnam that, that um, the flagpole would have the U.S. flag and the Confederate flag. Samuel Black is director of African American programs at the Heights History Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He curated a traveling exhibit about African Americans in the Vietnam War called Soul Soldiers. Didn't the military clamp down on flying the Confederate flag? They did eventually, but, you know, a choice like that, what goes up on a flagpole, that's an officer's decision. And that's where it became rather difficult. Rules and regulations in the military is all a matter of who is in power to enforce them and whether they will enforce them. To take it back a little bit further, in 1948, when President Truman had initiated Executive Order 9981 to integrate all branches of the U.S. military, a few years later, we were fighting in the Korean War, and it was still segregated units. There were some generals, including MacArthur, who refused to integrate. You can have an executive order from the highest office, the commander-in-chief of the military, the president of the United States, and it's still those orders still not followed. So the same thing was taking place to a smaller degree in Vietnam in terms of flying Confederate flags and other types of things. Black veterans talk about simmering frustration from seemingly minor things that really did make a difference. What magazines were available to read? What kind of food was served? What music did they play on military radio? Always, it seemed to them, there was a preference for white America. So many of the hurtful racial tensions were small, but felt big and really served to divide the men. Talk to me about some of the ones you lay out in your work. For instance, the special handshakes called DAPs, which became a source of friction. Oh, the dapping uh, among African-Americans. The term dap is a corruption of a Vietnamese word that actually means beautiful. And it was a ritualized handshake done by African-Americans. Many of the signs, one indicated love for your brother, another a slashing movement across the throat, indicated death to MPs, but it was a sign of bonding among the brothers in Vietnam. And it often caused friction because African-Americans might start doing an extended dap, for example, in the chow line. And whites behind them didn't want to wait. Words would be exchanged. The next thing you know, a fight would break out over something like that. That's, that's back in the rear with the gear. Uh, that's where the dap got long. This again is Army veteran Chris Moore. Uh, I got frustrated by it one time when I was in 90th replacement getting ready to leave. And I said, man, I'm buying everybody a Coke. And I stood up to go get a Coke at, at the bar, and it took me half an hour because I couldn't pass the table without giving up the dap. And then I came back with five Cokes in my hand and had to give up TT Dap to the same guy. So sometimes it got it got, even got out of hand for us, to tell you the truth. 
but it was just an elaborate greeting, a way of saying, hello, soul brother, I'm here with you, and, and we're in this together, and we should stick together. And that's what it was. Now, stay right where you are emotionally and intellectually and continue to listen. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. I'm Melissa Block, and next we're going to spend some time with a special group of World War II veterans. Last month, members of the Tuskegee Airmen, the nation's first black fighter pilots, came together for what could very well be their last reunion. They met in Florida, and NPR's Karen Grigsby-Bates was there. They come in one by one or in small groups. Some have the brisk pace and erect posture that speaks of their military history. Others walk a little more slowly. Several have younger family members hovering protectively nearby, and a few roll by or are pushed in wheelchairs. Many haven't seen each other for seven decades. They're all former pilots of the 332nd Fighter Group, black men who fought to be allowed to fight in the air in World War II. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, trim and crisp, came from Michigan and says all these men made a special effort to get here. 355 pilots were sent overseas. Of that 355, only 46 are living today. The ages vary anywhere from 86 to 96. In other words, there's not a lot of time left, which is why they've come tonight. Leo Gray, one of our members, thought that it would be nice if we could go ahead and call upon those 46 that are living now to come down to Orlando, which we have done, and just join maybe one more time for our last hurrah. About a dozen of them were able to make it, and they came in good spirits with lots of stories. Alexander Jefferson, a small man with a precise silver mustache, told about being gunned out of the sky during a mission. I was shot down August the 12th, 1944, strafing radar stations, and I was knocked out. So I spent nine months in Germany as a prisoner of war. How did the Germans treat As an officer and a gentleman. No beatings, no torture because of the Geneva Convention. Nearby sits Hiram Mann, a chipper man who was nicknamed Gremlin by his colleagues. Mann remembers how he was saved by a twist of fate. He flew 48 missions during the war, but the base flight surgeon wouldn't clear him and some of his squadron mates to go back so soon. So someone else was tapped to fly Boss Lady, the plane he'd named after his wife. Mann saw the change on the duty roster. Well, they scratched out my name in pencil, his name above mine, to fly in my place. I said, they've got me scheduled to fly your plane again. Is that okay? Or what are you supposed to say? No, you can't do it. You know, yeah, it's okay. Not so okay for the pilot. Boss lady never returned. I think about it. I say, yeah, but for the grace of God, go high. But then I may not have been in that exact spot in the air when he was shot down. During World War II, a number of black men volunteered to become pilots, but the segregated military refused their offer. A 1925 report by the Army War College claimed blacks weren't intelligent or coordinated enough to fly complicated machinery. It also questioned their courage. It took the outrage of the black press and a lawsuit that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court before an experimental program that would train black pilots was established. A vintage Air Force newsreel tells the story. In July of 1941, five young Negroes made aviation history at Tuskegee, Alabama. These five men were the first of their race to graduate under the Army Air Force's newly organized plan for training Negro pilots. 
Nearly 1,000 pilots were trained, and about a third of them were posted to Europe. The Germans called them Schwarze Vogelmenschen, or black birdmen, and they said that with great respect and considerable apprehension. The Allies called the pilots red-tailed angels for their protection and for the signature color on their planes' tails. This meeting in Orlando was chosen to coincide with the 66th anniversary of the mission to Berlin, the longest round-trip mission undertaken by the 15th Air Force during World War II. The goal, take off from Ramatelli, Italy, escort bombers to Berlin, destroy the Daimler-Benz tank works there, and return. 1,600 miles nonstop. Mission accomplished. They'd served their country well, but when the Red Tails returned, Alex Jefferson says it was business as usual. Coming back on the boat, got to New York Harbor and the flags waving, Statue of Liberty, walked down the gangplank, a little white soldier at the bottom says, whites to the right and niggers to the left. Coming back home. You talk about startling. God. Colonel George Hardy says the Red Tails' performance made a lasting impression when the Air Force became a separate branch of the service after the war. Hardy says based on its experience with the Red Tail pilots, the Air Force commissioned a study on the feasibility of integration in November 1947. And then in uh, April of 48, the Air Force announced they were going to integrate. That was before President Truman signed that executive order. The order that eventually would integrate all branches of the service. Brigadier General Stacy Harris counts herself as a direct beneficiary of the Red Tails' efforts. Harris is the first African-American woman to command an Air Force flight unit. She's now Mobilization Reserve Assistant to the commander of AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command. What they did, how much it meant to not just blacks in the service, but to everyone in the military, as far as desegregation, as far as paving the way, as far as demonstrating that blacks could fly, as far as just being American heroes. To this day, it's still overwhelming to me. You look like it still gives you shivers. It does. It does. Lieutenant Colonel Leo Gray, the event's organizer, says he and his fellow pilots didn't consider themselves heroes. We thought we were just doing what we had to do at the time, and uh, we had no idea we were going to have the impact that it did even if for years that impact was persistently ignored outside the black community. In 2007, President George W. Bush invited all surviving Tuskegee airmen, pilots, ground crew, technicians, to Washington to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. I would like to offer a gesture to help atone for all the unreturned salutes and unforgivable indignities, and so on by the half on behalf of the office I hold and a country that honors you, I salute you for the service to the United States of America. They're getting used to the accolades. At the Red Tail Pilots reunion in Orlando, Navy personnel at a conference in the same hotel stood in long lines to have their picture taken with this group of proud elderly men. Captain Art Pruitt explained why. These gentlemen literally changed the course of history and broke down one of the hugest barriers in the military, the race barrier, the color barrier. They are the heroes of our past generations and being able to honor them like this is truly a privilege for a guy in uniform still. Then he turned back one last time to gaze at the men who flew into American history. Karen Grigsby Bates, NPR News. So there it is. What are you thinking? 
What are you feeling? Did you learn anything new? Did it turn you off? This is NPR News. Or did it turn you on? What if this was a challenge and you had to turn it into song? Let me share with you what it might sound like.
from the places our God where we met thee. Blessed are hearts, drunk of the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadow beneath thy hand, may we forever stand You can exhale now. Yes, it's been a journey. I'm hoping it's not over. Today in the United States, we hear terms like diversity, equity, and inclusion as goals for our society now and in our future. However, before those words were a part of our United States lexicon, there were brave, determined black Americans willing to, be, to die to be recognized as worthy to fight for any rights, for all of our rights. The question I have for you today is, how would you grade their success? I agree with Maya Angelou, actress, professor, passionate coach, who says, won't it be wonderful when black history and Native American history and Jewish history and all of U.S. history is taught from one book, U.S. history. And we've been talking about striving and struggling to become one. I'm going to leave you with a little soul food. You know, we like to do that every week for the moments when you feel like, is this all there is? Or I'm tired of being tired. Or are you feeling like, oh, I'm so left over, left out, left behind. Why do I keep doing this? Well... When you get to that point, remember what you're about to hear. Tonight's soul food is taken from the book, Carry On Warrior, Thoughts of Life Unarmed. It is a letter from love by Glennon Doyle Melton, in 20, written in 2013. And I quote, Stop. Stop holding your breath, breathe, there's enough. I have created enough abundance of acceptance, attention, recognition, joy, peace, money, energy, clothes, food. I will never leave you without enough. And there is nothing to be afraid of. No feeling, no circumstance, no person. These things come and go. 
and you can live through them without running, hiding, numbing, or hurting another of my children. And did you know this? There has never been anything, anything wrong with you. Not one day in your life. You are exactly who you are meant to be right now, just as you are. You are not to be ashamed. You punish yourself, but you have no reason to be punished. You can stop now. You're free. You're worthy of giving and receiving. Believe you are new every moment, new. Your time, your energy, your mind, the people who come into your life, they are all gifts and they are infinite. They belong to you and to everyone else. You've been listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. My guest today, my storyteller, Colonel Arthur Nick Nicholson retired, and we thank him for blessing us with the beginning. I hope what we've heard is not the end. I hope we continue to improve. In the meantime, your seat at the table is guaranteed. I look forward to next time. Remember, you're stronger than you feel, smarter than you think more beautiful than you know, and more love than you can ever imagine. You're chosen. You're important. Until next time, this is Tyra, loving you.